0: Amen. Thank you, Susan. Well, it is so great to be here with you this morning as we start another year of women's Bible study. And Susan, you said I've been married for 35 years. Actually, it was 36 years just a couple weeks ago. So, (laughs) praise God. So exciting. But I want to begin by asking you all a question, and that is have you ever met somebody famous? somebody well-known, maybe a favorite uh, artist or a favorite musician or a favorite actor or actress, or maybe even a significant politician or a great pastor, uh, someone that you just look up to and respect. And if you did, what did you say when you first met them? I mean, did you say something like, I'm your biggest fan? And did they look at you like, well, that's scary, right? <gasps> or you know something like, I'm a huge fan. And then kind of thinking later, what does that even mean? Or did you try to tone it down with like, yeah, I'm a fan and then feel like you lost the opportunity. Well, you know, there are lots of experts out there who coach people in how to respond, how to react, what to do when you meet someone that you consider to be famous. And they say that if you have a little time to spend with them, the best thing to do is to ask them a question. And they say that that question would be, what advice can you give me today? When you meet someone famous and you've got a chance to talk to them saying, hey, what advice can you give to me today? And you know, in a sense, we're going to be introduced to someone today, someone famous, and that is the people who made up the church at Thessalonica. These are the Thessalonians, these young believers, these ancient believers in the first century 2,000 years ago. And we're going to uncover some amazing advice from God through the Apostle Paul to this church and ultimately to us. And if we act on it, this advice is sure to change the way that we both think and live as Christians. But before we jump to the advice in the letters, uh, we need to do a little bit of background so we can learn a little bit about how this church was founded or established. Now, the city itself, uh, Thessalonica, was around for a long time before the church was established. In fact, it was founded in about 315 B.C. So in the fourth century B.C., so it was around for a long time. Now, about 40 years before Jesus was born, the residents of this city sided with Mark Antony and Octavian in a great war. Now, if you don't know who Mark Antony and Octavian are, Mark Antony was actually Cleopatra of Egypt's last lover, and he committed suicide together with her. And then Octavian was the adopted son of Julius Caesar, known as Caesar Augustus, who we meet in Luke chapter two. And it's interesting as we begin our journey this year, just to think about the fact that these are real people. These are real places. These are real events. These aren't myths and legends and fables, but these are real things that happened. And God has communicated through this word to us, through real and factual events. And he is a real God who has truly communicated to us through the scripture. So the people of this city, they sided with Mark Antony and Octavian who won a great battle. And as a result, they awarded the city of Thessalonica the status of a free city. And back then being a free city was a really big deal thing. It meant that you had the right basically to govern yourself. Uh, You could also choose how you wanted your children to be educated. You could mint your own coins, and you were even exempt from paying certain taxes to Rome. So, this honored title of free city was something that they simply did not want to lose. They wanted to hold on to that at all costs. Now, we're going to begin by talking about uh, some of the incidents that occurred in the book of Acts that are recorded in the book of Acts. In fact, we're going to look at acts 16 to begin with so if you want to turn there go ahead and turn there Uh, we are going to look there and then we're going to transition into acts 17 where we see the launch of this church but in acts 16 we see paul and silas in the city of philippi they were in philippi leading to people to christ and at one point uh, they passed by a young girl who was a slave girl She had owners, and this young slave girl was also demon-possessed. So these uh, owners of hers, her slaveholders, they marketed her. They had her tell people's fortunes, and they made a lot of money off of her. And when Paul was passing by her one day, he recognized that she was demon-possessed, and he cast the demon out of her. And you know what happened? Her owners were enraged. They didn't care about her and her soul and the fact that she was demon-possessed. They were just mad that they were going to lose money now. So Acts chapter 16 verses 19 through 24 says, When her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas. I mean, can you imagine being seized, just jumped on by these people, and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers? Now you're being dragged into the city, you know, the the area of the main city there. And they said, these men are Jews, and they're disturbing our city. That was the city of Philippi. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice the crowd joined in attacking them. So they've got this mob now attacking them. And the magistrates tore the garments off them. They ripped their clothes off and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them in the inner prison, in the inner dungeon, and fastened their feet in stocks. He was going to make sure that these guys did not get away. Now, the text goes on to say that at midnight that night, Paul and Silas, they weren't crying and whining and weeping about all the blows that they had received or the fact that they were locked up in a dungeon, but they were praying and singing hymns to God. And God allowed there to be a great earthquake, so great that the doors of the prison were opened and the stocks fell off of them and they were able to escape. And when the jailer who was assigned the task of keeping them prisoners learned of this, he freaked out. Because back then, if you were a jailer and you allowed your prisoners to go free, the cost was your own life. So Paul told him, don't freak out, we're all here. We're not going anywhere. And the jailer recognized that these were men of God and he said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And Paul preached the gospel to him. And he, along with all of his household, were saved that very night. Well, the next morning, the city officials learned that not only was Paul a Jew, but he was also a Roman citizen. So what happened to him was actually illegal. You couldn't beat a Roman citizen without a trial and throw him into jail the way that he was. So they were afraid they were going to get into trouble and they scooted Paul out of the city as fast as they can. They basically said, please leave here now. And now we transition into Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17 verses 1 through 3. It says, now they were on their way and when they had passed from Amphipolis and Apollonia They came to Thessalonica, the city that we're going to learn about, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead and saying, this Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. Now think about this, scholars say that with the distance between Philippi to Thessalonica it was probably a four day walk for Paul and Silas. So four days earlier they were dragged out into the marketplace of Philippi, they had their clothes ripped off their body, they were brutally beaten. They were thrown in prison. Then they take this four day walk and the first thing they do when they get to Thessalonica is enter into the synagogue and preach the gospel. I mean, how amazing is that? You can see why Paul was the early champion of the Christian faith. They did what they were called to do. They were not thwarted in any way by obstacles or hindrances or persecutions. And it says in Acts 17.4, and some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. So they were making converts there. People were listening to the gospel that Paul and Silas preached, and they were giving their lives to Christ and being transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. And Acts 17, 5 says, but the Jews were jealous. And taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob Jesus, and the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. So the unbelieving Jews there, they didn't like this. They didn't like the gospel being preached. They didn't like people following Jesus, and they didn't like the message of Paul. And so they made it into a political issue and they got the city in an uproar saying, guess what, these men are preaching King Jesus instead of Caesar as king, and you know what? We're gonna lose our status as a free city. We've got to do something here. And panic ensued among the people. And so they rushed Jason's house where Paul and Silas were staying and they didn't find Paul and Silas there. So they dragged poor Jason out and they made him put up a pledge of money that if Paul were ever to come back, he would lose all the money he had to put on account with them. So this young church was launched into a culture that was very hostile to the gospel and very hostile to the Christian faith. Again, these people thought if you keep preaching Jesus, if you follow Jesus, you're gonna ruin everything for us. You're gonna make our lives miserable and you're gonna put in jeopardy our status as a free city. They did not want to lose that and they jealously guarded it. So again, these new believers for from the get-go looked down at by the people around them act 17 10 says the brothers there in thessalonica immediately sent paul and silas away by night to berea and when they arrived in berea what did they do they went to the jewish synagogue another city another chance to proclaim jesus it's amazing and then if you jump down to verse 13 it says in act 17 13 But when the Jews from Thessalonica, remember the ones who had just caused so much problem for Paul and Silas, when they learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Those Jews of Thessalonica were so hostile to the gospel, to Christ, to this young church that they even went to the next city to push Paul and Silas out of there then the brothers immediately sent paul off on his way by the sea to the sea but silas and timothy remained there those who conducted paul brought him as far as athens and after receiving a command for silas and timothy to come to him as soon as possible they departed Isn't that crazy that the Jews there were so enraged against the gospel that they just weren't satisfied with pushing Paul and Silas out of their city alone. They had to keep on going and keep on opposing him. They were that hostile to the Christian message. And when Paul got to Athens, he continued to preach and was mocked there as well. But you know, the whole time Paul was wondering How are the Thessalonians doing? I mean, this new church, these young believers that were born into this extremely hostile community, I wonder how they're doing. I wonder if they're surviving spiritually. I mean, scholars say Paul might have only been there for as little as a month because the text said in the beginning of Acts 17 that Paul preached there for three consecutive Sabbaths. And some scholars say that he could have been there for up to six months, but either way, it was a very short period of time. And Paul knew how rough it was for that church there. And he wondered, how are they doing? Are they standing firm? Or are they caving in to the pressures that they're receiving from the community around them? Is the culture around them causing them to cave or are they still standing firm even in face of hostility? So if you want to turn to 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, 1st Thessalonians, because we're gonna pop around 1st and 2nd Thessalonians for the rest of our time. But we're gonna see in 1st Thessalonians chapter three, verses one through three, that Paul addressed the concern that he had. 1st Thessalonians three, one through three, he said, "'When we could bear it no longer, he needed to know how they were doing. We were willing to be left behind at Athens alone. And we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith that no one be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are destined for this. Paul saying we had to find out how you were doing. If you were surviving, was their faith legitimate? He had taught them that God was their creator, that they had been created by a perfect and holy God who expects and demands perfection and holiness from us, his creation. Now, we know, as they knew, that we have all fallen short of God's standard. And so Paul taught them, he preached to them that God, a loving God, provided Christ for their sins. That Jesus came to be the substitute for them, take on their sins and give to them the righteousness that they could never achieve on their own. And Paul wondered, did they really respond to that gospel right? Did they really put their trust in him? Did they really turn from their sins? Because if they did, though they might have done so with difficulty, if they did, even in the greatest hostility, the greatest pressure, the greatest persecution, they would still be standing firm. And the same is true for us. And so that's our first point. Stand firm in the Lord. Stand firm in the Lord. Now, Timothy brought back a report to Paul. And he said, the Thessalonians, they're standing firm. They are standing firm. And Paul said, yes, and he wrote this letter to them. And he told them, I hear that you are standing firm and I exhort you and I challenge you to keep on standing firm, to stand firm in the Lord, even in the face of great conflict. 1 Thessalonians 3, 8, Paul was so overjoyed that he said, for now we live. I mean, we're just so encouraged if you are standing fast in the Lord. And then 2 Thessalonians 1.4, Paul was bragging about them. He said, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. They were standing firm and Paul was encouraging other churches with that news. And then 2 Thessalonians 2, 15, Paul encouraging them to keep on standing firm. He says, so then brothers, stand firm, stand firm and hold to the traditions that were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. They were under pressure from the world around them and they were called to stand firm. And again, so are we because we're under pressure too. The world is saying things to us like, do you really believe that? Do you really believe that Jesus is the only way and anyone who hasn't put their faith in him is gonna be separated from God forever? You really believe that? The world will say things to us like, you guys are so self-righteous. You're so self-righteous and you're so judgmental, right? Didn't Jesus say, don't judge? Why are you so judgmental then? Why do you make such a big deal over this? Why do you make everyone else's lives so miserable with your God and your rules and your regulations? Your beliefs are making our lives inconvenient and they push against us, but we are called to stand firm in the Lord. And we stand firm in the Lord because we are spiritually safe in Christ. As Christians, our souls are spiritually safe in Christ. And though we may be persecuted, though we may be reviled, though we may be hated and rejected, our souls are safe in Christ. A couple weeks ago, I had the opportunity to go to Maui with my family, and it was super fun. And I love getting the chance to go to Hawaii. And on the few occasions that I've got to go, one of the things that I really like to do is to go snorkeling. And it's just so great to be in water that's actually warm. <laughs> and where you can see the bottom uh, you know being in that warm water where you can see the bottom and then just getting a little snorkel set for 20 bucks and being able to see all these amazing fish and the sea turtles We went to this bay where we were continually able to see sea turtles all around us. And there was one time that there was the littlest sea turtle. Uh, He was just a tiny guy and he was so cute. He was up near the surface of the water and he had his little head up and you could see him kind of looking around. And then uh, one of those boats that comes in with like the snorkel tours, uh, they pulled into the bay that we were at and all these eager and excited people with their snorkel gear who wanna see the marine life and they wanna see the sea turtles were jumping off the boat. And of course they saw the little guy at the top of the water. And they were excited, so they encircled him, and you could see this little guy was starting to panic, you know because these people weren't harming him at all, but they just wanted to see the sea turtle. So there was a, a circle that was forming around him of people and you could see he didn't really know what to do and they were getting closer and closer and closer and I kind of wanted to rip my snorkel gear off and say, "Leave him alone you know he's my sea turtle. I was here first <laughs> but you they were they were crowding him in and then the little guy just went right down underwater and as he did that I watched him and there was this gigantic rock under the water and he went down in under the water and there was a, a crack or a crevice in the rock and he planted himself in that crevice and when you look down from the top the color of the rock meshed with the color of the top of his shell you couldn't even tell he was there You couldn't even see him and you could see his little head. He was like, I'm safe, I'm safe, I'm safe. And you know what? That's the same way it is for us. Colossians 3.3 says your life is hidden with Christ in God. We are safe in that rock, in the rock of Christ, just like that little sea turtle was. And so we're able to stand firm in this life in the face of hostility and rejection and persecution, because we are spiritually safe from all harm in Jesus. And you might say, I know, I know that's true. I know that I'm spiritually safe. I know that I'm called to stand firm, but it's hard. It's hard to be persecuted. It's hard when the world is pushing against me, when even my own family members are pushing against me wanting me to cave in to culture and what culture thinks or my circumstances just wear me down the same thing over and over and over again i get so tired and weary and worn or you don't know the voice in my head that's just saying did god really say that is that really what god meant are you sure that's what god wants you to do i mean this is ridiculous And I feel these things constantly, what do I do? Well, we do the same thing we're going to learn over the year that the Thessalonians were called to do. And that is to keep our minds fixed on what's to come, to look forward to the future. And that's our second point, look forward to the future. Throughout these two letters, we're gonna see this charge repeated again and again and again, to look forward to the future, to hold on to the hope that we have in Christ and His great plan for us. Let me run through some passages in First and Second Thessalonians, and don't feel bad if you don't jot these all down. Get them from your group leader. She's here for a reason, right? <laughs> okay, First Thessalonians one three. It says, "Remembering before our God and Father, your work of faith." And labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. It was their steadfastness of hope that looking forward to the future in the Lord Jesus. 1 Thessalonians 1 9 and 10, it talks about their conversion and the result of their conversion. It says, You turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. First Thessalonians 4.13, we don't want you to be uninformed brothers about those who are asleep, about those who have died, that you may not grieve as others who do not have hope. You do have hope, you're looking forward to the future. 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 and 17, it says, the Lord himself, he's going to descend from heaven with the cry of command, with the voice of an archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first then we who are alive, who are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air and so we will always be with the Lord wow, we have so much to look forward to in the future. 1 Thessalonians 5, 9 and 10, it says, God has not destined us for wrath. We will not experience the wrath of God, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. In 2 Thessalonians 1, 6 and 7, talking about their enemies, those who were making life so difficult for them. Even in that, they were called to look forward to the future. It says, God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you. Those who are the enemies of God will one day receive the recompense that they have earned but for you, verse seven, to grant relief to you who are afflicted, as well to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. We have so much to look forward to. But again, that doesn't mean that things are going to be easy in this life. It doesn't mean we're going to live trouble-free. Uh, We see that specifically stated in 1 Thessalonians 3, 4. Paul said, when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction, just as it has come to pass and just as you know. So Paul's saying, you look forward to the future because I have something, we have something so much better than a trouble-free life. We have eternal life. We have eternal life in Christ. And Jesus reminded his disciples of this in Luke ten twenty, where he said, rejoice, that your names are written in heaven. If you're a Christian, that's where our hope is. That's what we look forward to, is the fact that our names are written in heaven. And then Jesus in John 14:1 through three, realizing that with the coming persecution, his followers, his disciples could be troubled. He said, don't let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my father's house are many rooms. If it weren't so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also." What great encouragement from Jesus. He says, if your name is written down in the book of life, he's preparing a place for you. And one day we will be where he is. That is so much better than a problem-free life. We have so much to look forward to in the future and our hope comes from this because hope is just looking forward to something it's looking forward to what's to come and that brings joy in our life proverbs 10:28 says the hope of the righteous brings joy that's proverbs 10:28 looking forward to the future we have joy in this life even in the hardships and the difficulties of this life and we got to remember that this hope, this joy comes from an attitude. It's a mindset. This is all going on in our minds. It's how we think, how we think if we think with consistency in who we are and what God has stored up for us in the future. We see this even in the Old Testament in Psalm, uh, Psalm 73 psalm 73 verses 2 and 3 the psalmist there saying he allowed himself to think about the wrong things basically he said as for me my feet had almost stumbled my steps had nearly slipped he was mentally caving in he said why for i was envious of the arrogant when i saw the prosperity of the wicked." he said he was looking around in this life and he saw people who did not love and follow god prospering and having more easy and more successful lives in this life than he did and he became discouraged disheartened but then in verses 16 and 17 of the same psalm he says when i thought how to understand this It seemed to me a wearisome task. I mean, just thinking through all these things about how the righteous can prosper in this life, he said in verse 17, until, until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. He's saying, then I got my mind on the future and I realized that no matter how good it is for them here, Those who are outside of Christ, those who aren't right with God, this is the best it'll ever be for them. And for us as Christians, no matter how hard, no matter how difficult, no matter how trying, this is the worst we're ever going to experience. He got his mind on the future. He kept an eternal perspective and it got him in the right place he was encouraged and we're called to encourage each other we're going to see that as we study these letters for example 1 Thessalonians 4:18 says therefore encourage one another with these words and 1 Thessalonians 5:11 says encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. Paul's saying you're doing a great job building each other up and encouraging each other. Keep on doing it. Build each other up, encourage each other. You gotta link arms and do this together as a community. I mean, we encourage each other when we meet here together on the weekends. One of the great ways we can encourage one another is by going to church together as a church family, as a church community, by reading and studying the word of God together, by being in groups like your Bible study small group and other groups here at church, reading and studying, and also by serving together, serving and linking arms and advancing the cause of Christ together with your sisters here in Christ. We've always been called to encourage one another as a community. And sometimes we get discouraged because we forget this. And we drift from our community. We drift from our church, so to speak. We try to do things on our own. We drop off in church attendance on the weekend. We're not regularly coming to our groups. We're not linking arms together the way that we should, and we end up discouraged. And that's a normal outcome of not living together as community where we can encourage one another. We need to hold on to what we have coming in the future, the hope that comes with our relationship with Christ and all that he has for us. And we remind one another of that together in community. And if you're thinking to yourself, I have been doing that. I am regularly going to church on the weekends. I am meeting together with my small group. I'm serving here, but I still feel discouraged. I just realize that as Christians, we don't want to live that way because we have the joy that accompanies our hope in Christ. And so maybe we should think about what is it that causes us to feel discouraged? I mean, what are we doing when we feel discouraged? Maybe be more actively thinking again about this, because it is in the mind. What am I watching on TV when I get discouraged? What magazine or book am I reading when I feel discouraged? Am I on social media when I feel discouraged? Is it a certain time of night where I just get run down and I feel discouraged? then let's do whatever we can to get rid of those things in our life. Turn that TV off, close that magazine, log out of social media, go to bed earlier, do whatever it takes, because we are the people who know the joy of the hope of being reconciled to God through Christ and having an incredible future to look forward to. And you know, Because we're in Christ, it not only means that we have this amazing future to look forward to, but it also means that we're called to live like Him. We're called to live like Jesus, just like the Thessalonians were. They were called in Christ to be set apart for God, to be different from the world, to live lives that were holy, to live lives that were blameless. And that's our third point, is to live blamelessly. And we're going to see this repeated again and again throughout these letters. This call to blameless or holy behavior. And blameless just means without blame. Live a life where no one can blame you of sin or wrongdoing. 1 Thessalonians 2.10 says, you are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct towards you believers. Paul saying, we set the example by living holy and blameless lives before you. Again, don't feel bad if you don't get all these references, and we're gonna study these things for the whole year. 1 Thessalonians 4:4, a charge to each one of you to know how to control his own body in holiness, and honor. First Thessalonians 4.7, God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. And then this great prayer in 1 Thessalonians 5.23, may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, sanctify you, set you apart, make you holy completely. That was Paul's prayer for them, and may your whole spirit and soul and body, be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Wow, what a prayer. May your entire being, your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless until Jesus comes back. I mean, we, like the Thessalonians, we want to be close to Jesus, but you can't be close to Jesus and close to sin at the same time You're either gonna be close to Christ or close to sin, but you can't be close to both. As we move closer to sin, we move away from Jesus. And as we draw closer to Jesus, he draws us away from sin. And you might be thinking right now, I just feel like I've messed up. I mean, I don't feel like my life is blameless right now. I feel like I'm drifting from Christ and I've drifted into sin. What do I do? You know what to do. You confess and repent and you get close to Jesus again. Jesus himself said this to the church in Revelation chapter two. Revelation two, four and five, it says, I have this against you. This is Jesus speaking. That you have abandoned the love you had at first. What do you do? Remember, therefore, from where you've fallen, repent and do the works that you did at first. Confess your sin, repent, and get close to Jesus. In 1 John 1, 9, a verse that I'm sure most of us have memorized. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If you've been cleansed from unrighteousness, you're blameless, you are blameless. And it only makes sense that we would live like it then. And you know, if you're that person who right now needs that new start, God has that new start for you. A great passage is found in Lamentations 3, 22 and 23. Lamentations 3, 22 and 23, it says, the steadfast love of the Lord, the hesed love, this love of God that pursues us and wants to win us over. The steadfast love of the Lord, it never ceases. It doesn't stop. As long as we're in this life, his love for us doesn't stop. It says his mercies never come to an end. If you feel like you've exhausted the mercies of Christ You haven't, because they never come to an end. They are new every morning. Today is another morning, right? Another chance to grab on to the mercies of God and say, God, I confess, I repent, and I need a new start. I need to draw close to Christ again. Great is the faithfulness of the Lord. We know King David, he really knew this. I mean, we studied him for the last two years here in women's Bible study. First Samuel and second Samuel, which were really one large volume originally. This gigantic book that chronicled the life and times of the great King David. And at the end of the book in second Samuel chapter 22, 22 through 24, there are these amazing verses that the authors, the editors, the redactors ended at the end of the book. And it's uh, quoting the words of David himself. And he says, I have kept the ways of the Lord and I have not wickedly departed from my God for all his rules were before me. And from his statutes, I did not turn aside. I was blameless before him and I kept myself from guilt. And the Lord has rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to my cleanness in his sight. And you might read that and think if you've studied the whole book like we did, was the editor out of his mind? I mean, did he not see what David had done? David had a great fall into sin. And he had other falls after that. How could David say, or why would this author tag this in at the end, where David said, I've kept your rules. I'm blameless before him. Because David got it. When David was called out on his sin, he confessed. He repented and he got close to God. And the overall pattern of his life was one who lived blamelessly. When he fell into sin, he confessed and he repented and he got back up again. Is there anything that God's revealing to your heart right now that you need to cut out of your life, that you shouldn't be doing, that you shouldn't be associating yourself with, or is there something you know God is calling you to do and you haven't been doing it? May this be a new start for you, a chance to begin living blamelessly again, living blamelessly before him. And you know, if we're gonna do all these things, if we're gonna stand firm in the Lord, look forward to the future and live blamelessly, we're gonna need some help, right? We're gonna need some help from God. And Paul recognized this. He recognized this and we know he recognized this because through these letters, we see him constantly talking to God constantly praying to God and we need to do the same thing and that's our fourth and final point is keep on talking to God keep on talking to God now I'm going to fly through some verses in first and second Thessalonians just to give you an idea of how much Paul was talking to God think about it two short letters eight chapters all together And listen to all these references that we have to prayer. 1 Thessalonians 1-2. I think this one alone could do the trick for me. 1 Thessalonians 1-2, we give thanks to God always for all of you constantly mentioning you in our prayers. So he's saying we're always praying, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, constantly. 1 Thessalonians 2, 3, and we also thank God constantly. 1 Thessalonians 3, 9 and 10, what thanksgiving can we return to God for you for the joy that we feel as we pray most earnestly night and day. Praying earnestly night and day. 1 Thessalonians 3, through 13 is a prayer for them may God our father himself and the lord jesus christ 1st Thessalonians 5:17 is just going to say it out right there pray without ceasing don't stop praying another prayer in 1st Thessalonians 5:23 may the god have of peace himself 1st Thessalonians 5:25 he wants them to pray for him brothers pray for us First, or 2 Thessalonians 1.3 We ought always to give thanks to God for you. He's saying we are obligated to keep on thanking God for you. 2 Thessalonians 1.11 To this end we always pray for you. Second Thessalonians 2 Thessalonians 2.13 But we ought always to give thanks to God for you. Again, we're obligated to keep on giving thanks to God for you. Another prayer in 2 Thessalonians 2, 16 and 17. May our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father. 2 Thessalonians 3, 1. Another call for them to pray for him. Brothers, pray for us. Another prayer in 2 Thessalonians 3, 5. May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. And then another prayer in 2 Thessalonians 3.16. May the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times and in every way. I mean, these eight chapters are saturated with calls and commands and references to prayer. And if you think about this, this was written by God through the Apostle Paul. Paul. The man who was an enemy of God in the sense that he opposed the church of Christ and Jesus revealed himself directly to him and called him to be, in a sense, the last apostle, called him to go out and make a difference in the world for Christ, and he did. Uh, Historians say that the church flourished because of the life and work of the apostle Paul. This guy who was so radically close to Jesus, who made such a huge and significant difference in the world for Christ, what did he do all the time? He prayed, he prayed and he prayed and he prayed. And why, why do you think he prayed so much? Because he knew that prayer makes a difference. He knew that prayer makes a difference. And that's why he was constantly talking to God. 1 John 5, 14 and 15 says, this is the confidence that we have towards God. Wow, what confidence do we have towards him as Christians? That if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests we have asked of him. God's saying this is the confidence that as Christians you have towards him that if you pray anything according to his will, you know that he hears you and he will respond to those requests and whether the answer is no or yes or not yet or maybe, he has heard you and he will answer you. But we have to talk to God. We've got to keep on talking to God. And James chapter four verse two reminds us that you don't have because you don't ask. I mean, there's things that we just don't have because we're not talking to God about those things. When my uh, kids were younger, I homeschooled them. And when my daughters were younger, they kind of struggled with math. And uh, one of my daughters, I told her as it was time for her to work in her math workbook, when you need help with a question, just raise your hand or let me know and I'll come over and help you with the math question. She had a little stubborn streak that she probably picked up from me, but um, she just didn't want to ask me. So she'd be working in her workbook and when she got to something she didn't understand, instead of saying, can you help me with this, she would huff and puff. <sighs> <sighs> you know, but didn't want to humble herself and ask. And then, when that didn't work, she'd start sliding the workbook around the table. I'd hear this. I knew what was going on, of course. You know, it wasn't like I was clueless, but I had asked her to ask. And then, when things got really bad, she'd start to drag the chair around the floor. You'd hear this. Rrr, rrr. You know, so the huffing and puffing, the notebook going around, the chair dragging. I asked you to ask, right? And then finally, she would say, Can you help me with this math problem? Sure. I thought you'd never ask, right? (laughs) I mean, yeah, of course. I would have helped you right away, but I asked you to ask. And how often might we look like that before God? As he tells us, ask. Talk to me. I hear you. I'll answer you. And we don't. But when we talk to him, it makes a difference. We're going to spend a long time in these eight chapters, in these two letters. We're gonna actually spend about nine months in this text. We're gonna really get to know this ancient group of people that we've just met or been introduced to today, and they're gonna become our good friends. Proverbs thirteen twenty says, whoever walks with the wise becomes wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm as we walk with the Thessalonians, so to speak, uh, learning from and listening to the advice that God gives us through the pages of the text that is written in the letters to this church, we can and we will become wise. But it's important that we put what we learn into practice because just because we're learning it doesn't mean we're gonna become wise. Just because we know it or agree to it doesn't mean that we're wise. I mean, we can even tell someone else what to do and they can put it into practice and become wise. But if we're not putting it into practice ourselves, we're fools. We're the fools. Our theme verse is First Thessalonians 3.13. And we can see our four points in a sense within this verse, it says, in a prayer that he may establish your hearts, establish, cause you to stand firm, that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness, that you would live blamelessly before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints, that we would look forward to our future with Jesus and his coming. And all of this is said in 1 Thessalonians 3.13 in the context of a prayer, reminding us to keep on talking to God. And with that said, let's close by praying. God, thank you so much for this amazing group of women that you have uh, sovereignly chose before the foundation of the world to come here and be here today. God, I pray that if there's anybody here who hasn't yet made peace with you through your son by placing her trust in Jesus and turning from her sin, that this would be her day that this would be the time that she is literally transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light, Lord God. And I pray for those that do know you that we would keep on standing firm, Lord God, no matter the difficulties, the persecution, the hostility that we experience. that we would stand firm in what we know to be true. God, help us to encourage one another to look forward to the future that we have, to link arms together as sisters in Christ, and to do this as a community. I pray, God, that we would live blamelessly before you. God, please help us, Lord, if there's anything that your spirit has convicted us in that we know we need to push out of or get rid of in our life, may we do it now. May we confess and repent and get close to Jesus. And God, I pray that we would keep on talking to you. Help us, Lord, to pray without ceasing, to talk to you continually about everything, Lord, knowing with confidence that because we're in Jesus, you hear us and you answer us. And God, we thank you so much for your Son, without whom, we could do absolutely nothing. And so we pray in Jesus' name, amen. You guys are dismissed to your groups.